Welcome to Shootin' the Chit, a podcast by Zach Hoekstra and Danny Lott. Two guys who love talking about board games, and they do it pretty casually. In fact, you're probably going to hear some adult language, and they may even touch on some mature topics. If you're looking for a family-friendly podcast, now would be the time to turn back. Otherwise, pull up a chair, and let's start Shootin' the Chit. A familiar scene unfolds. A rustic medieval village, painted the hue of a cleaved cantaloupe by a setting sun, rests outside a deep and wandering wood. The cobblestone streets wind between thatched-roofed cottages and crooked wooden inns. A creaking sign flaps as we approach. Its emblem bears a six-sided die next to a pint of amber ale. Time has worn the sign with cracks and chipped paint, but its invitation still shines. Turning to the door of the pub, it cracks open as we enter and are greeted by a fabulously dressed older man. He ushers us in with a smile. Welcome, travelers. Come in. Rest your feet and have one of our wholesome brews. All are welcome here at the weary die. Wait, don't leave. Die like a singular dice. Not like tired people get murdered here. We really need a better name. <clears throat> anyway, have a seat and make yourself at home. The kindly barkeep pulls a chair from a table. Settling in, the chair is well used and warmed by the glow of the nearby hearth. We only carry the finest of ales, meads, and vineyards here. You seem like a wise one, traveler. Perhaps you're seeking something to stimulate the mind. We have just the thing. It's a sweet potato ale brewed diligently by a local sage by the name of Descartes. It's called, I drink, therefore I am. The barkeep pours a softly bubbling amber elixir into a smudged glass stein. The drink's head is thick. As the eccentric man places the drink on the table, the smell of a library wafts forth. Sipping the concoction brings about the taste of dreary winter afternoons cuddled with a good book, and heated debates with strangers on Reddit. Hmm, not your flavor, I can tell. Perhaps this one will do. It's a deliciously fruity red wine made from the sweetest grapes. It's made at the vineyard of two bards, Howard and Harold. It's called Merlot Rider. The barkeep uncorks a dusty green bottle and pours a deep maroon liquid into a shimmering wine glass. The drink coats the inside of the glass in thick veins as it swirls. It smells of a foul herb. The vintage coats your mouth quickly and tastes of a shimmering, reflective orb with a hint of questioning the effectiveness of militarized combat. Huh. Still not what you're looking for. Ah, I have just the thing. It's a refined whiskey, aged for a century in an oak barrel, mulled with exotic spices and scented with a single sprig of lavender. It's made by a pair of insane brewsmiths. 
they dabble in the arcane arts of simulation and intellectual competition. The barkeep takes a suspicious-looking black bottle off the shelf. Its label is a 20-sided die with a pair of crossed bones behind it. The title is too smudged to read as the barkeep pours the mahogany beverage into a dirty highball tumbler. The drink smells of cardboard and nostalgia. The drink stains your mouth with heat that creeps down your throat. It tastes like two guys talking about board games on a podcast? I'm more of a fan of maple syrup myself, but I think this one is fine when you're in need of a fix. Oh, its name? It's called Shootin' the Chit. Aw, thanks. <laughs> I actually enjoyed your Euro game. Hi, everybody. I'm Danny Lott. Hi, and I'm Zach Hoekstra. And this is Shootin' the Chit, a podcast about board gaming. Zach, what's our topic tonight? Our topic today is about board game origins, because we're going to have origins coming up. And this seems like a... Wait, you you made this. Why did you make such an awful, awful thing? I so listen. It's origins, and we're fun starting a podcast, so we're uh-huh. gonna talk about our board game and origins. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. We're gonna start a little bit with who we are as people, why we're doing a podcast, because God knows there's not enough board game podcasts hosted by two nerdy white people in America, and uh, then we're gonna tell you how we got into the hobby. And then we do some other stuff on our show. Maybe we'll have a format. Maybe we won't. Maybe it's jazz. I don't know. Fucking listen. You'll find out. (laughs) So, Zach, tell us about yourself. All right. So, uh, I'm Zach Hoekstra. I live in Colorado. I'm a uh, software developer by trade. Uh, By night, I mostly design board games and go to sleep because software development is a lot of hard work. (laughs) (laughs) The implication that you sleep at night in the software industry is hilarious. It really isn't. Things are on fire all the time. Every every single system that you think is running perfectly is secretly on fire. It's like the Simpsons trash fire. <laughs> awesome. I'm Danny Lott. I am by day a salesperson. By night, I am a video producer and board game designer. And you can check out my first game, Calm Award, coming to store shelves soon. Soon? Who knows? China. Am I right? Just China. <laughs> Designers know what I'm talking about. That guy, he knows. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Zach, you're also a board game designer, correct? Yes, I am. Although I haven't been so lucky as to get anything published yet. My big problem is I mainly design Euro games in America with a whole bunch of American publishers. Fair deal. Uh, speaking of which, Euro games, America, there's so many buzzwords. Oh, Zach, no. Why don't you give us a breakdown of, of what drew you into this fantastic realm of cardboard and dice? Oh, so we're going to get into Origins straight away. All right. Yeah, well, I mean, right. we can dick around if you want. I'm fine with that. I don't care. We can probably actually do something or talk about things that people actually want to hear. So Origins. So strangely enough, uh, despite the fact that I am now way into Euros, like really way into Euros, I actually started out playing Dungeons and Dragons. So the, the story goes is that uh, I was like 10 years old and in daycare, not daycare, after school, right? D- daycare for older kids. Right. <laughs> And uh, this kid brought this really cool game. It was called 
dungeon quest? I'll actually have to find out what it's actually called. But it was like this, this you had a board with squares on it, and you could be a dwarf or a barbarian, and you moved around and fought was monsters. It Hero Quest? It was Hero Quest. That's what it's called. With the dope ass like green barbarian minis and the yeah. white skeleton yeah. minis. And the gargoyle that was just straight out. And all the player characters were like that weird crimson blood color. Yes, yes. Yep. Um, I, I later looked. It's out of print and you can't find it anywhere. And I'm so mad. They tried to do a Kickstarter to revamp it last mm-hmm. year. And it was a legal clusterfuck. Yeah, pretty much. But but anyway, so I, I think this is the shit. And so I go back to my dad and I say, Dad, this is fucking amazing. I mean, I was 10, so I used fucking a lot more. Uh, this is fucking amazing. I need to play this. We need to find this. And it was that point I found out that it was out of print and you couldn't get anywhere. And my dad, who had played Dungeons and Dragons with his friends back at college, said, I have something that's like Hero Quest." And so I got together a whole bunch of friends and he GM'd and we were 10. The game was shit. Uh, but... We loved it, uh, and my dad actually GM'd. And then later on, uh, we found, strangely enough, miniature wargaming, uh, Games Workshop, and like Warhammer 40k. So uh, I got into that, and then uh, it was a short hop from that to kind of American-style miniature games. And then I found Euro Games, and and my little analytical software developer mind thought, wait a second, there's lots of rules I can fit together. This is amazing. <laughs> And went full hog towards that. So I kind of ran the gamut. I genuinely enjoy playing almost every single board game out there. As long as it's got some sort of choice and some sort of interesting thing, I really enjoy playing it. Um, But I really like Euro games. I really like Euro games. Right on. What was the first Euro game that really got you kind of thinking about that whole genre as just a different way to implement board gaming? Oh, shit, man. I don't even know. Uh, I'm going to have to go with Puerto Rico. It's an old classic. But Puerto Rico had like all of these little buildings that fit together just right. And the, those six roles that you had to take. And there was some really interesting interplay. And there was a part of me that was like, hang on a second. What, what if these buildings were slightly different, then you would have a completely different game. That would be cool. Uh, anyways, so now the game I'm trying to pitch to publishers is basically uh, basically Puerto Rico, but with different buildings and mechanics and everything. Uh, and dust. Lots of dust. And Sorry, lots ash. Of, ash, you're right, yeah. ash. That, that's the other problem with uh, with Puerto Rico. One, it's a really it's a really complicated Euro game that only plays well with three and only three. There, there's also the the other problem of you know you're building up a plantation on Puerto Rico, and every so once in a while you ship in these tiny little workers, which are brown discs. Ugh. It, it was a different time. Yes, the nineties. It was 90s. so different. I know, I know. They weren't aware of the troubles of slavery 20 years ago. Oh, God damn it! Now you're making me feel guilty. It's a, <laughs> it's a damn good game. But yeah, that, that's, you know what? That's an entire other podcast episode. Yes. Yes, it is. Look forward to that, podcast landia. The podcast about unfortunate implications, making you feel guilty. Watch it. Yeah. Your abstraction of real-life events should make you feel bad for those actual real-life events because you as a person at the table are responsible. 
Again, something entirely different to get in. Yeah. Uh, to move away from a slightly awkward subject, Danny, tell yes. me about your origins. Sure. So I have always been a fan of the video games. I've always been a fan of card games. Like I, I found Pokemon, the trading card game, and Yu-Gi-Oh! and Magic the Gathering back when I was in like late elementary, early middle school. Oh. And then in college, I got kind of bored with them. I still loved magic and I had a regular group that we played, you know, the old MTG with, but it just wasn't, it wasn't for me. And I'd found a uh, tabletop role-playing games and I fell in love with Star Wars role-playing game and D&D and it was 3.5 at the time, damn it, and the math was harder and the game was purer. None of this narrative-driven 5e bullshit. Just kidding, I love 5e. Um, <laughs> regardless, then I, I was uh, going through a phase where I was really deep into Lovecraft. Because, you know, no one in the world except me has ever enjoyed the writings of H.P. Lovecraft. So I found the Call of Cthulhu, the living card game. Oh, man. I fucking loved it. it. It was so different. Like, my least favorite part of Magic the Gathering is lands. From an economic standpoint, how can a land card that is mandatory to be in your deck be worth $25? Because it taps for two colors? That's bullshit. And then the economy of, like, actual drawing the cards oh the right ratio of lands has to be there but even so you might just get mana flooded or mana locked even if you do the precise fractional elements they're so obnoxious and so the fact that there wasn't that element completely blew my mind because card games have to have this iconic resource management element to them right no mm -hmm. they don't that's what Call of the living card game taught me and but nobody wanted to play it because they didn't want to take the time to build decks and learn the new system. So Re then I found Arkham. What? Sorry, remind me, what was the resource uh, mechanic in Call of Cthulhu, the living card game? So beginning of your turn, you could just flip any card in your hand upside down and slide it under an, a little face down card that wasn't even part of your deck. And that pool could grow in a specific color or number. Mm. And so... You got to turn any card in your deck into a resource as the game went along. And that's something that a lot of games have adopted now. But it was it was revolutionary to me. So from there, I found Arkham Horror. And everybody loved Arkham Horror because they were like, oh, it's just like a video game. Like, I've even got little my hearts and my little brains to track. And it was pretty much Call of Cthulhu, the living card game except we were all friends and it was a game where we competitive or cooperative game. What the, f that's not real. You have to get mad at your dad. Who's the cheating banker when you play, or you have to get upset at your friend because he had two blue mana open and you were a dumbass and tried to cast a 10 cost fireball when they're playing blue. Yeah. How, how do you win a cooperative game? When, when we all win against the game, who actually won? Exactly. Exactly. So just all of those elements kind of blew my mind. And I was like, oh, shit, board games are anything and everything. And so I just started the spiral from the Fantasy Flight Games catalog from there. And then now I have like 300 games. I, my wife hates how many games I have. <laughs> yeah, my... Uh... My wife was kind enough to give me a wall in the basement. So like she she is amazing. I love her. I love you, honey. <laughs> I will uh I my wife has actually helped me build shelves. <laughs> like we had weekend projects where we built shelves and then like uh mod podge or hodgepodge uh magic cards on the side of them because like on the oh, side we we do pop-up events for board game cafe stuff mm -hmm. so it's it's a business thing but at the same time like i just have so many board games it's a problem it's a genuine problem i need i need help <laughs> we all need help 
I'd say let's make a 12-step program, but then we'd all gamify it, and we'd be like, well, where's the player reference card? But 12 steps on it. I... Have you really considered the resource allocation? Like, why am I selling games to get money when games are worth victory points and money isn't really worth anything? <laughs> it's two to one, but board games are like one to five. It's amazing. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so... That was fast. That was that was really fast. I, I got a fun little tale for you about yes. like people who first find cooperative games for the first time. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this uh, strange and unusual place called Reddit. There's a uh, there's a board game section on there where people can talk about board games. Uh, usually they just yell about board games. I was gonna say my experience is it's less talking and more like word daggers being thrown at people. <laughs> How dare you like this game that I don't like? <laughs> But I remember this epic, epic thread where somebody asked a question, why is Hanabi unwinnable and it's a terrible game and we hate it? And you okay. click on it. Yeah. And so this guy is saying, so we've been trying to play Hanabi and we don't understand how anyone ever wins Hanabi. Because if somebody starts playing more cards, another player can just play the wrong cards and make everybody lose. So how does anyone win the game? And people around the forums are kind of doing this little head tilt of, wait, what? And they ask oh, them a couple more questions. They thought it was a competitive game. They thought Hanabi was a competitive game. So like you were giving clues so that people would give you other clues. They thought it was a negotiation game and you each played your own little set of numbers. Uh, yeah. And, I mean, and, that sounds like an interesting game, The it, whatever they were playing. Yeah, it could have been a really interesting game, but... I just bless them, bless them, bless them, and they figured it out, right? They they were informed, and there was this kind of collective, oh, wow, people. I, are fun. I it have, says the third fucking sentence of the rule book is players either win or lose together. But if you're if you're not used to that sort of game, then that's the sort of thing that you just naturally skip over in the rule book. You and I have skipped over things in rule books all the time because they're like, we know this shit. We know I don't know what you're happens. talking about. I did not play Red 7, the easiest game in the world, incorrectly for two weeks and then realized it was a much shittier game than I made it. Because literally just having the Red 7 card means you win and the rest of the game is just an exercise in futility. Yeah, uh, it... it Probably not now, but I have tons of horror stories about mis misknown or misremembered rules. Mostly around my estranged, not my estranged family, but my distant family. Uh, my, my core family, so my there's dad. there's a difference between your estranged and your distant family? You will quickly just, learn this, Danny, is that my family is freakishly normal. Like, we genuinely like each other, and apparently that's an unusual thing. So, we get along pretty well. What? But I like, know. didn't you have to form a ragtag group of friends to make up for the lack of a traditional family unit in your life? My, my dad taught me how to play D&D. &D. <laughs> I mean, my dad did too, but then I like never played D&D &D until college again. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But yeah, no, like my core family really likes board games. So I have a really fun time actually playing board games with them. But then we've got like the cousins and I do that thing where, you know, I need to get a gift and I'm a board game guy. So I buy them a board game I think they'd like. And they usually get one very key thing very wrong. 
I'm just imagining like incomplete train tracks on Ticket to Ride. You are actually nearly correct. It was Ticket to Ride. The rule they got wrong is they thought that on your turn, you took tickets, then placed trains, then took, uh, what are they, the, then took the new routes. And they thought you had to do all three on your turn and it was all mandatory. But they remembered the rule that routes you didn't complete were with negative points. So the winner of those games were usually like the person who only got negative 15. Their game sounds horrible. It was horrible. They taught it. They played it because they really enjoyed it so much. And they brought me in to play. And I found the rules. And I'm like, no, that's incorrect. And their response was, I quote you, well, yeah, it's incorrect. But we really enjoy playing it this way. Yes, and that's we're gonna have an entire episode on that. We're gonna have an entire episode on that. Okay, <laughs> podcast land can't see how frantic I'm up at I'm Kermit hands right now. And so this is one of my favorite topics. We're gonna talk about this later. <laughs> and the I'm the Euro of the game. I know, and I am the Euro gamer, and I'm gonna say that God damn it, you will play this game by the rules. Oh by the God, fucking rules. Oh, I want to talk about this so bad, but not today. Um, so our topic was origins, and we've we have covered origins. <laughs> the next section of our show is recommendations, and this is where we recommend any game and the history of gaming, and we can recommend it to play or not to play, and we can only recommend one game, and the same game can never be recommended again. Well, given Whether that it's one episode, I don't think that's a problem. Yet. Right. But here's the thing. Like, you can't say, like, man, I'm recommending Ticket to Ride. And then seven episodes later, if we are able to get, like, anyone on the show, they can't be like, man, I recommend you never play Ticket to Ride. I'm also going to throw it here that you're, you're going to find this a lot for me is that I will often recommend games that are interesting, but not necessarily good. <laughs> right on. Okay. Right. Uh, so, like, I really enjoy playing board games, not just for, like, finding a good board game, but finding ones that really make me think about how to design certain board games. And sometimes that means I play a board game that has a lot of interesting ideas and just terrible execution or something else went wrong. Yes. And stuff like that. So just that is something I am going to do. Good, good. I, we all know what's on the hotness list. We can all look at the top 20 board games on the Geek or on the Amazon, but th those rare gems, that's what it's about. Yeah, those rare gems. So, Zach, speaking of rare gems, what game do you recommend this week? So, uh, I know I've been hyping myself up as a Euro game, a Euro gamer, but it turns out that I like all sorts of games, and this is one of those odd games games that isn't quite a game that I absolutely adore. And it's called Zendo. Uh, for those of you that know uh, Looney Labs, they're well, they're really well known for Flux. And I realize this is a terrible lead-in for this game. Because there are a <laughs> lot of gamers who hear Flux and turn the other way. Squishy chocolate. Ugh, fuck <laughs> oh, you. Yeah, I can change the rules as I play. That's amazing. And every board gamer sitting there going, no, no, please, God. <laughs> No, like Zendo, it's called Counterspell. <laughs> Zendo is a completely different beast because what it is, is it is a game about discovering the rules. The way this works is you've got one person who is playing a master and they then you've got all the other players who are playing students and the students are competing against each other and the master's job is simply to produce an enjoyable game. 
there are a whole bunch of pieces in the center of the board. Zendo can be played with damn near anything. There's actually a released set, and I suppose I should say as a podcaster, that you should go out and buy the released set and support Looney Labs in this amazing game. The pieces have various properties. They have color, they have shape, they have size, they might be able to point at each other, all sorts of things like that. And the master makes a rule about this. So they might say that a particular arrangement has... Uh, is going to be marked with a white stone if it has at least two red pieces, and it's marked with a black stone if it's not. And then the master puts out two of these configurations, one that's marked white, one that's marked black, and he doesn't say a single thing other than that. And from then on, it's up to the players to figure out what the rule is, and they do that by actually making their own configuration. So if I'm a player, you know, I might say, all right, well, this, this thing has a yellow piece. I wonder if I put a yellow piece in this one. Will it be marked white? No, it was marked black. Why is that? Right? So it's kind of this collective deduction. And eventually, one player is going to get the chance to guess the rule. And the way that works is they guess the rule. They say, I think this uh, this arrangement of pieces is marked white if it has a blue piece pointing at a yellow piece. And at that point, the master says, hey... Uh, no, because here's this example that I'm going to make myself uh, that your rule says should be marked white, but is actually marked black or vice versa, right? Just something that disproves it. And this keeps going until somebody correctly guesses the rule, at which point they become the new master. Uh, I really like this game, uh, partially because I'm a software developer and this is basically bug fixing the game. Uh, this why, why does this do this? When the user clicks this button, my server crashes. I should probably figure out why. But also because it's a game that usually ends up, it starts out competitive as people try to figure out the rule for themselves. But if a rule's particularly hard, it ends up becoming cooperative. The players start working together and, and sharing their theories. It's, it's a really amazing game. It is thought-provoking, and it produces what I love most is that oh moment. That, that moment where you're staring at the board and you have no idea what's going on, and you have no idea how all these pieces fit together, and then you get like one little piece of information, and suddenly everything clicks into place, and you're like, wait, wait. Oh, fuck me. That's what it was? <laughs> so... I highly suggest Zendo. Um, if you are really interested in a competitive game that has a really strong feeling of winning, Zendo probably isn't for you. But if you really like these kind of deductive games that that don't necessarily have winners, but have a lot of enjoyment and, and all that through that, then I think you really will enjoy Zendo. Don't, don't knock it because it's Looney Labs. This is very different from their usual fare. Right on. That's, uh, we, you and I have spoken about this game before, and I've, I've still yet to play it, but the way you describe this game, it sounds like an experience I just want to have so desperately. Absolutely. You know, the next time we are at a convention together, I will bring Zendo, we will set up a game, and we will just get people to play it. Yes. Also, uh, speaking of conventions, I'm going to be at Dice Tower Con in July, and I know, unfortunately, you're not going to be there. But... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if anybody who's heard this, which I'm, I'm sure my mom's not going to be there, but uh, <laughs> anybody who's heard this wants to play Zendo, just hit me up and we'll we'll find a way. Mm -hmm. So my recommendation is a game that I love near and dear and I've made uh, just a myriad of YouTube videos on. And I, I have to recommend this game as my first recommendation. Sentinels of the Multiverse. Not just the core set, but the entirety of the game. I'm just getting out of the way now, so I don't have to talk about it. Like, an individualized podcast. I love Sentinels of the Multiverse. It's a cooperative game where players take on the role of copyright-adjacent superheroes, and they fight copyright-adjacent villains. 
in generic environments. The thing that I love about this game is that it feels like every pre-constructed, let me rephrase that, it feels like every card game where you have to do the work of constructing your deck. But the deck's already made. And every card in your deck reflects the hero that you play. Everything you do exemplifies from a mechanical and thus a narrative standpoint your character. And everything you do feels cool. Like, there's an equivalent to the Human Torch meets Thor. His name is Ra. He has fire powers. He deals damage. And he, like kills things in a single shot and hurts himself in the process because he's burning the candle at both ends. And when you play raw, you feel like you are burning motherfuckers to the ground. And my wife loves Chrono Ranger and Chrono Ranger is this time traveling sheriff who can like pull different weapons from this like pocket of time in the future and in the past. And he does all of these extra actions on his turn and everything he does is constantly like ping, 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 ping. Everything just deals a single damage. So it's like, he's just constantly shooting motherfuckers with a revolver and it feels great. And you fight these villains that have these big cataclysmic backstories and powers. And, and some turns it feels like you're on top of the world. And then the next turn, it feels like Thanos snapped his fingers. Spoilers. I I mean, that comic's been out for decades. (laughs) So it just feels exactly like the theme. And and part of the thing that's continued to sell me on the game to this day is I, I mean, like I don't love Sentinels as a game as much anymore, just because like I can play it on my iPhone and I've been waiting on the final expansion for a hot minute. But the people that make the game are so passionate about what they do and have made a business for themselves out of this idea. And so like Christopher Bedell and Adam Ribertaro, they're still making Sentinels content today. Like they have a podcast called The Letters Page, which if you're a Sentinels fan, go check it out. It's really great. And they're great human beings who now have started taking other designers under their wing with their company, Greater Than Games, that all started from this crazy idea of, hey, what if there was a superhero game where we all were superheroes and we all fought as a unit against a bad guy instead of a deck building game where Spider-Man meets Venom fights the Hobgoblin, but Zack and I aren't friends. <laughs> like who the fuck, why would I want to be the agents of shield recruiting Spider-Man when I can just be fucking Spider-Man throwing some shade there, Danny. I'm sorry. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Legendary is great, and I'll probably recommend it another day, but god damn it, Sentinels is way better. Yeah, uh, I've got a friend who is just as obsessed with Sentinels of the Multiverse as you, and so he has every single expansion. He plays it every chance he can get. My favorite is, oh, what's her name? The 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 lady who can grow super big and then shrink. Skyscraper. Skyscraper. She's amazing. I, I really love playing her because I really like the, the ability to put out all of her link cards, those little techie devices that she throws on everyone, and then be able to shift. Here's what I love about uh, Skyscraper. I hate that part of her. Really? It's like being the big clunky thing that's like, deal four damage to everybody because you clapped your hands. Uh, <laughs> somebody for six damage throw away one of your shitty link cards because who needs that and then you can punch them again (laughs) different characters um what is it uh my friend really likes why am i thinking frozone from the incredibles uh Uh, absolute zero 
Absolute Zero. He loves Absolute Zero because when things line up just right and he has all the support characters behind him, he deals all the damage in the world and it takes him 20 minutes to do so. Absolute Zero is, I, I would describe him as like either the most euphoric or disappointing algebra problem. <laughs> like, it's either 15 minutes of math to this, like, gorgeous, aha, 47 points of damage, or fuck, I died, I killed myself. I love it. And the thing is, the great thing, as you mentioned, is that both of these heroes exist, right? Like, I can really enjoy Skyscraper, and my friend can really enjoy Frozone. I'm sorry, Absolute Zero. I'm sorry, uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Freeze. I don't know. Uh, They're all the same. Yeah, and then, uh, oh, yeah, just, it's amazing. It's, it's really amazing. Right on. So, this is the part where we're going to transition into a section we're going to call Hype Train. Future Danny, insert a freight train sound here. Um, <laughs> yes. Sorry, in our podcast land, can't see Zach. He just <laughs> gave the whole uh, train whistle motion. <laughs> so I want to talk about some games. And Zach, unfortunately, there's just not a lot out right now that you're super hyped about, right? Yeah, not well, nothing on the board game side. I've got some RPGs I'm super hyped about. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about board games for now. Okay. And, and from what I hear, you have more than enough to take up the hour or two. Yes. Uh, so I there's two games I want to talk about. One of them that I have not played that I am hype about getting out and I, I want to see it be successful. It is a two-player cooperative game called Mad Love. And it is about HP Lovecraft imagery. Big shocker based on the 45 minutes I rambled about HP Lovecraft. I fucking love Lovecraft. <laughs> uh, so it's it's a two-player cooperative game where you're trying to escape this kind of nightmare world and you have to help each other. And I just, the art is compelling and two-player cooperative games that are basically like these moving puzzles excite me. Like there's a game that, uh, Zach, you were telling me you and your wife are really excited about playing where two people are falling in love with each other. Yes. And that that concept, it, it, there's something great about the the abstract ideas you can get into when it's just a two-player game. Because you don't have to have this outline of like protagonist, antagonist, or like my city is racing your city. Like you start to run out of concepts when you get into three or four player games, but two players, it can be literally fucking anything. Like, ah, uh, I need your emotions to balance my emotions while we do taxes or whatever. I don't care. And so I'm excited about it because it's Lovecraft and, and cooperation and dreams and nightmares and love. It's good stuff. That's really amazing. Have you uh, seen or played And Then We Held Hands? I have seen it. I have wanted to play it for so long. And when I heard about it a couple years ago, Starlit Citadel, there are a couple video reviewers in Canada. Mm -hmm. They mentioned it and they did a breakdown of it. And I was like, oh shit, I need to be playing this. Yeah. But I just never found a copy. I, I got the chance to play it. And uh, I will tell you that a lot of games that I do genuinely enjoy and I think are good games, I will rate as all right. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a very, very high bar for this is a good game and I love it. So what I tell you that, uh, and then we had hounds is a decent game. I genuinely mean that. All right. Right. It's a decent game. Um, but the theme is really, really cool because this, this theme that you are two people in a committed relationship having an argument and the entire game is about managing and navigating your emotions so that your two little player pawns can reach each other and reach emotional balance and understanding. That's something that a lot of games just don't have these days. 
right? We're, we games started out big on like conflict and epicness and and all of that, right? Yeah. Galactic civilizations and armies and war and fighting and wizard duels. Every game about wizard duels. What? There are games about wizards dueling? I know. If you like the idea, I might have one or ten or two hundred suggestions for you. But Now, uh, do they have cards? That's the important part. Mm, cards. That's going to be a little tough, but I'll see if I can find a few. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, but the, the idea about a game about people navigating a difficult argument or a difficult time in their relationship, that is something that's quiet and personal. And that's a really interesting thing. Yeah, I I just love. There's not a lot of subtlety, like, and this is coming from a guy whose first game was like 31 horror novels in a box. But like, <laughs> one of the things I tried to do with Coma Ward was explore subtlety, because we don't have that in in board games, right? Like, it's always the biggest and the most epic and the grandest. And like, I love my publisher. I absolutely adore everything epic, but they they hold fast to that. And and Blood Rage, like all these big popular games and the game that I'm about to, to hype train about in a minute are all these big, huge, epic, I want to be the coolest. And they don't explore like the subtle nuance of humanity. And I think that's what makes, and then we held hands and like what I'm excited about for Mad Love so refreshing. Like it takes board games as less of a simulation of this thing we're never going to be a part of and more of an abstraction of something that we experience and aren't able to put to words. And so it's it's a simplification that helps us better articulate a grand idea as opposed to a simplification that allows us to experience something we're never going to have. <laughs> One, that is amazing, and I absolutely agree with you. Two, I just realized we are so fucking bohemian and pretentious right now. Oh, of course. <laughs> games, about, games about war? Twa, twa, twa. No, we only play games about romance. So, <laughs> human feelings. Yes, which is why I'm going to lead into the next game that I'm super hype about. Motherfucking Rising Sun, y'all. Oh, yeah, war and armies and shit. Oh, fucking Japanese mythology, baby. Uh, I played one game of Rising Sun, and this was fucking months ago. I want to play this game so badly again, and I will tell you why. We were playing with a couple friend of ours, whom I am. I'm. I'm very close with the husband. I'm very close with the wife. My wife works with the wife. We're all. We're all really tight. We're good friends. We've known each other for several years. We bonded over board gaming. Not to brag, I got them into the hobby because it is a drug, and I will push it. He backed Rising Sun, and he got his copy, and we played it. And I kept allying with the husband. His wife kept allying with either my wife or their son which meant somebody was always out of the loop. Somebody did not have an ally. Because the beginning of every round is the tea ceremony, which sounds so stupid. Oh, fucking tea <laughs> ceremony. Oh, la -da -da. And you take these fucking awesome half of a yin-yang and you match them with the person you decided to ally with. And sitting between you is your connected yin-yang. And on your turn, when you take an action, you look at the top four tiles and they say things like move or uh, recruit or do whatever prey or something to that extent. And so you decide, and as is typical of many Euro games now, you get one special effect for choosing that thing. Everybody gets like a shitty version of it. The person you are allied with gets the same version of the ability you do. So being an ally is really powerful because you're basically getting two powerful actions every round and you can try and coordinate with them to pick the action that you want. 
The clan that I was allowed me to basically do whatever I wanted every round. I could take one of those tiles and put it face down and say it's a recruit action, even if it was something else. One of the tiles is betray. You lose honor, which is this very powerful resource in the game, to break your alliance and get stuff. His wife wanted me to break my alliance with him. And she said, you can do any action you want. If you betray him, I will give you all of these resources. And he said, Danny, don't break our alliance. I will, you know, be my best friend. Don't do this to me. If you pick this one action, I will give you these things. And I looked his wife in the face and I said, okay, I will make, I will lay the betray tile down and take the betray action and lay that tile down if you give me the resources now. She said, great. She gave me all these resources, many very powerful things like special abilities that you have to pay lots of money for. And I looked him in the face and I took the betray tile and I put it face down and I looked him in the eyes and said, what was that thing you wanted? <laughs> deploy? Great. We're going to deploy this round. What was it you were going to pay me? And I looked <laughs> in the face and I said, I put a betray tile down. The rest of you, the you not comes. Fucking bastard oh i became a horrible monster you <laughs> you are the person who trades away all your lumber in Catan and then plays the monopoly card aren't you you're that person <clears throat> Zachy. when i've played games together so you know that i'm not that type of person <laughs> rising sun allowed us to put on these masks these gorgeous political kabuki masks and just rip each other's hearts out in the most elegant and gorgeous way. Uh, I did not win Rising Sun. <laughs> I, I, I did not come in third in Rising Sun. <laughs> but man, just that excite. Oh, I want that experience again. And the best part is like the husband and I and their son have been itching to play. Like all we want to do is play. And my wife is like, no. I'm never letting a game bring that out. You can play it, but never with me. <laughs> I never <laughs> want to see that side of you again. Oh, what is it? Um, I really wish... Uh, have you played New Angeles? I have not played New Angeles. So New Angeles is the same sort of negotiation game. You're, you're, uh, have you ever heard of it before? Vaguely. So, so the way I explain New Angeles is that you are all corporations, like very large corporations in a city in which there is no government. It's a pure... Uh, pure capitalist society. And ostensibly, your job is to work together in peace and harmony to keep the city running and growing. And at this point, I chuckle and break down and say, no, 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 no. Your job is to keep the city just barely running while making as much profit as possible. So the, the idea behind the game is, is you actually get a secret role, which is another player's corporation. And you win the game if you have made more money than them. You don't even fucking care about anybody else. You just need to make more money than them. Oh so the game builds up this secret web of corporations who specifically hate other corporations. And I would like to tell you that it is amazing, but I think it falls a little apart in the negotiation aspect because okay. there was, I, I've played it twice now and there was never one time where I was able to do something like what you did in rising sun. That, that just utter betrayal. Oh, it and felt so, so good. <laughs> like I, and, and we had to stop. Like we, we actually had like a, a moment and, and this is why I think I liked the game so much 
is in that moment of betrayal, I was able to look at the person whom I'd taken all the resources from and say like, hey, we're good, right? And she was like, yeah, I just, I feel like now you're forcing me to become a bad guy. And 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 we had this like moment, like we all had this moment at the table where we were like, I feel like you're forcing me into this dynamic that sometimes I'm afraid I'm becoming in my real life. And it almost became like this group therapy session where we all vented about like, man, I hate shitty cutthroat things in real life. And I'm always afraid that I'm being that over fucking Mahjong tiles and Japanese mythology pretend time. And it was awesome. It's uh, to, to get all bohemian and pretentious again. This is why I really like board games because they let you do that. They, they let you kind of build these social ties and these miniature social spaces where you can do stuff like this and explore naturally the consequences of your actions. Like yes. you, Danny, were a jackass. There, there's no way around it. You were a jackass in Rising <laughs> Sun. But here's the thing, you got punished for that, and you got punished hard. So you got a chance in a little social space to to explore an action where instead of being a nice person, you were an asshole. And then you got to watch as the group ganged up on you and destroyed you for it. Did you learn yes. a lesson, Danny? Did you I learn did. a lesson? And that was a lesson that I already knew in real life, right? Yeah. And so yeah. That's, that's why I love board games, because... They're just a simulation, right? They're an abstraction. And one of the things board games has to do for me is allow a space to be explored. And even if it's not the optimal path, it has to present a path that a, that I can take. Because I, I want to explore the consequences of an action. I want to explore the, the end of an idea. I want to follow a rabbit trail that I'm never going to explore as Danny Lott, mature adult who pays taxes and has a wife with whom he has to pay rent with. There are certain things in this world I'm never going to do. One of them is betray someone that I care for. But in the realm of a tabletop game, or even more freely in a, a tabletop RPG, that I can just dive into and wedge into and, and explore a mindset and dive yes. out. And like, part of that is like, I have a theater background. And so like, I'd love becoming characters and then diving out. Like it's not, I'm not a fucking, I'm definitely, obviously I'm not a, a, a fucking rain man type. I'm never going to win an <laughs> Academy Award. Look at me. I've got eight <laughs> shins, but you, you could play a dorky best friend like random sidekick. Right, or a villain. I'd always cast as villains in musicals. There's something fun about make-believe because it allows you to expand your understanding of the universe without the consequences. And that is absolutely because games are just play and play is the work of children. And we're all living in an era where everybody's an adult child. So you can't abandon that play. That's the best way for you to experience without going somewhere to war, right? Or going, putting yourself in a situation where you have to point a gun at your friend. That's the best way to put yourself in that situation and kind of wrap around how you would actually handle the idea and then never do it again. And that's so fun. It's, it's amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what this podcast is going to be. Philosophizing, drinking, and cursing. <laughs> And then not really sticking to the topic and kind of aimlessly rambling. Oh, we, yeah. We've got an ally. Like, I promise, this is where we get hype about games that we're <laughs> specifically not playing right, yet. Randomly. All right, all right, all right. Back on the track. Back on the track. 
anything else about Rising Sun that you just really fucking love? Um, you know, the art's cool and like the different types of components. Like there's cardboard, like there's cards, and then there's tiles, and then there's miniatures, but also those action things that I was talking about, those are full-on fucking mahjong tiles. And so like when wait, you wait, pick up like actual plastic, not even plastic, uh, plastic or ivory. Uh they they faux ivory. Faux ivory? Like Honestly, it's got that's... that ceramic chink to them. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And so like just it, when you put it on the table and you're like, man, that's a big ass Japanese impressionist map of, I guess, Japan, sort of. And then like there's this crazy like photorealistic modern uh, dark board game art of these like Japanese mythological creatures. And then there's these cool mini or not style miniatures. Mm-hmm. And then there's fucking Mahjong tiles. And like, then Mahjong tiles and, and yin-yangs and all of that. And no oh. dice. On how top much, of that. How much did the game cost? So here's the crazy thing. Best Kickstarter model I've seen ever. You back $100, you get everything. Okay. So everybody who backed it, there was one backer level, and it was $100. And everybody who backed it got all of the expansions. They didn't ship it once. Like, my bud just got his last expansion, and he wants to play it because one of the monsters is Godzilla. <laughs> uh, I mean, Daya Kaiju. Yeah, like we're saying, it's it's IP adjacent. Yes. <laughs> that didn't include shipping. So obviously it was $100 plus the God knows what if you're in Europe shipping. But what a great model, right? Like you either get it or you don't. None of this fucking pledge manager nonsense. Just 100 bucks. Yeah. Oh man, 100 bucks. What is it? I think uh, Cthulhu Wars ended up costing me 300 <sighs> it- it was some ridiculous amount. Did you get all the expansions? I didn't get all the expansions. I just got the base game. Because I, I, I really enjoyed Cthulhu Wars, but I did not have the shelf space to, to get all of the expansions. No, I don't think the Library of Congress, they barely have the shelf space. Yeah, for all of the expansions. Oh. <laughs> I love Sandy Peterson uh, because like he did Cthulhu Wars and then like his next Kickstarter was like Theomaki. And it's like a deck builder meets Rummy. Yeah, yeah, just and it's like, um, bitch, please, where are the minis? <laughs> we could put minis in it. I, they might as well have that box. Does not hold all the contents. I'm out of mind about the Yamaki, and it's just like he has to double rubber band the box, not so we can store it on the side, but so that the lid will stay on. <laughs> yeah, Sandy Peterson. But I got to tell you, there's nothing more satisfying. I'm even saying this as a Euro game player. There's nothing more satisfying than finally managing to summon Cthulhu and plunking down an eight inch miniature onto the board. It's pretty great. I fucking, oh God, we're not, we're not recommending Cthulhu Wars today. We're not doing it. We already recommended our game, Zach. We already did it. (laughs) It's going to be a race next episode. Who's going to recommend Cthulhu Wars first? (laughs) And now we're off track again. Once again, whatever. Yeah, whatever. We're, we're shooting the shit, right? That's right. That's what we do. We shoot the we, shit. We, we came up with this idea when we were in the car at a convention getting checkers and just <laughs> randomly talking about shit. I am okay with us rambling for an hour. I, I love that. Two things I love about that moment. One, I was like, this guy's great. I want to talk to this guy all the fucking time. And two, you'd never had checkers before? And I was like, well, if we're fucking popping that cherry tonight, baby. I live in Colorado. We don't have checkers. What do you have besides the thinnest air? Uh, <laughs> we have pot. Right on. I, we I, have I, thick I, air, and we need that pot. We don't have it. 
<laughs> no, so we have we got McDonald's and Wendy's and all that shit. Uh, we've got Five Guys Burgers and Fries. I right I hope you have that. Like they have the best fries. Nowhere else can I get such great soggy fries. And then um, I think they we just opened Shake Shack. But we don't really have many in and outs. I haven't seen a lot of them around. Or... We don't have in and outs either. And I know that like that's the big fucking West Coast fuss is the in and out burger. Mm-hmm. Everybody I've met from the East Coast or the Midwest that's gone and had it, they're like, it's fine. It's it's doable. I don't know what the like circle jerk about in and out is over on the, the West Coast. My, my understanding is that in and out does burgers smash style where you smash the meat onto the griddle really hard and so it like gets really like nice and crispy and brown all right we we have that here it's called smash burger i like it and once again we're completely off topic oh yeah board games (laughs) board games uh what was the original question i forgot Uh, we were talking about hype train we were talking about rising sun Uh, and yeah and how we met and checkers and all of that shit right Uh. We, we were talking in the car and rambling on and on. You were talking about your latest design game, and we were suggesting, like, different art inspirations and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. board game design and board game philosophy, and it just kind of spiraled from there. And I love these types of conversations. I don't know if they'll make good podcast material, but I love these types of conversations. Right on. I... Uh... This is good. I'm I'm satisfied. Uh, we should probably do a wrap of some yeah. kind. How do you want to wrap? My um, so, uh, well, hey guys, I've I've been Danny Lott, and I've been Zach Hoekstra, and we want to thank you so much for listening to us shoot the chit. You can find us. Uh, we're going to have a Twitter probably because that's a thing, and probably maybe a Facebook. Who the fuck knows? Uh, <laughs> we'll post this when we do. We'll put links for where everything is in the place where links go on that particular format stitcher and itunes and whatever else zach where can folks reach out to you if they are so inclined uh if you are so inclined you can listen to my various board game ramblings on twitter at at z hoekstra that is z h-o-e-k-s-t-r-a it's dutch yes it's weird don't worry about it (laughs) Right on. Uh, and you can find me on Facebook. I'm Danny Lott. I'm I'm the fat bearded one with the glasses. Uh, yeah, that narrows it down. Yeah, right. I'm the board gaming guy that has a beard and glasses and probably should eat less in and outs. You can find me on Facebook, and I'm also on Board Game Geek at D Lott, L O T T 1988. I don't do anything on the forum posting, but you can like message me on that. I don't care. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> All, All right. right. Well, folks, thanks for joining us on Shooting the Chit. We'll catch you next time. Have a great day.